Uh, today we are kicking off a new series called For the Love of God. Look at your neighbor and say, For the Love of God. Now, you will hear me say this often, and I'll repeat it because I think it's a basic handle that serves us well, and that is in life, we're always bumping up against things. We hear things, we see things, we experience things, and ultimately, you have three options. You can either reject it, receive it, or redeem it. So maybe you're in a conversation with someone who has given you marriage advice and you can just hear from what they're saying, this is foolishness, this is nonsense. I need to reject this advice. If I take your advice, it's gonna ruin my marriage. No, thank you. Reject that advice. Or maybe you're having a conversation with a doctor who says, hey, if you wanna be healthy, uh, you better eat better, sleep better, and work out more regularly. Well, that's, that's common sense, good advice. You should receive it. So you reject some things, you receive some things, but then there are things that as the people of God who have redemption hardwired into our souls, we look at things and we ask the question, is there anything in this that could be redeemed? And I often look at statements that we make and things that we say, and I'm like, that's so funny to me. We should redeem that statement. And I think about that when I think of the title of this series, For the Love of God. Because why, does, why do people say that? They say it out of frustration, which is comical to me that we would express our frustration by referencing God's love for the love of God. And I think to myself, well, we should redeem that because that's, that's ridiculous. When we think of the love of God, we should think of purpose and meaning. And rather than frustration, we should think of fascination, like, oh my goodness, for the love of God. And so in this series, we are going to be doing a deeper dive into just God's love and what does that look like and what does that mean for our lives. And I gotta tell you, you do not wanna miss next week because uh, Daryl Strawberry is going to be here sharing his personal story and how God's love has just altered his life and it is amazing. So do not miss uh, next weekend to hear from Daryl Strawberry. But here is, here is the challenge. We, we live in uh, a time of age or history where we are redefining so many fundamental things. And what this does is it creates confusion in our conversations. And so we will use the same words, but we don't use the same definitions. And so we are often confused by what people mean by what they say. Does that make sense? And so when it comes to the love conversation, this is certainly the case. Uh, because what we have done in our culture is we have taken the idea of love and we have reduced it to like. And we have diluted the idea. And so we say things like, oh, I, I love pizza or I love the Packers. Well, I, I mean, I like them, but I don't know any of those guys. I certainly don't love them the way I love my bride, but that's what we've done. We have diluted uh, this idea of love. And scripture has so much to say about love. In fact, so much of our faith uh, hinges on us understanding and applying God's love to our lives ad, uh, adequately and accurately. And so today, we're going to look at something John said uh, about love. And what I want you to do is, as we read through this, it's, it's a longer passage, uh, just be thinking, in what ways does this run against the grain of our culture's understanding of love? In what ways is, does this challenge my own thinking of love, and if I were to think of love in these terms, how would that benefit my life? And watch what John says. John says, dear friends, let us love one another. Watch this statement. For love comes from God. So all of December, we were in John chapter one, and we talked about John establishing 
God as the source of all logic and reasoning. In the beginning was the word, right? And God is the source of all logic and reasoning. Well, here John is once again establishing God as the source. And what you need to understand is God is the source of much of what we need and rely on in life. And he's saying, okay, God is the source of love as well. In addition to logic and reasoning, add love to the list. Love comes from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now watch what he goes on to say. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. I mean, those three words, that's a big statement. God is love. He goes on to say, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And we're thankful that God sent his one and only son into the world to become like us. Also, we could become like him. It's, it's an amazing truth. He says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that, he, uh, that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. So take a deep breath for a second. What you're introducing, being introduced to in this idea with John is he's saying, okay, God is the source of extravagant love, life-altering love. And this love is being lavished upon you and I. And because you and I now have the spirit of God living within us, you and I now have discovered or have available to us the capacity to love at an even greater level. So we've experienced great love and now we have the capacity to express great love. Does that make sense? He goes on to tell us this. And we have seen and testify that the father sent his son to be the savior of the world because we all need saving because this is what, uh, again, separates uh, Christianity from any other major world religion. You have to understand this. This is a key distinction. Every other major world religion stands at the base of a mountain and they look to its peak and they say, if we take this route, maybe just maybe we can reach the top. Christianity is the only major world religion where God descends from the mountain and comes down to us. It's a radical distinction that sets Christianity apart. He says, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. So he's, he's talking about salvation. And some of you, you're, you're not a Christian. And my prayer is over time, you would open your heart to the reality of God and receive him as Lord and Savior, which would be receiving of salvation. And if you choose to do so, I would just say, hey, text the word yes to 85379. And in return, you will get a link to nine videos to help you understand, hey, here's how I can understand and approach this faith. But essentially what he's saying is, hey, when you and I acknowledge that we are sinners in need of grace, we need a savior. And Jesus Christ came as that savior. And he laid down his life, his perfect life, on a cross and he died a vicious death so you and I can live a victorious life. And he rose three days from the grave and he is now seated high, lifted up on the throne of God and we place our faith in him and we surrender all that we are to him. That is the moment of salvation. That's what John is referring to. He then goes on to say, and so we know and rely on the love of God that God has for us. 
And I think we are losing the emphasis on our reliance. And so what happens is in our Western world, we, we're really proud about being independent and self-sufficient, but what will happen is you and I will go through life slugging it out, exhausting our personal faculties, trying to do it on our own, and then we're gonna discover we can't accomplish what we really need to accomplish in this life on our own. We need to rely on God. He says we rely on God and the love that he has for us, and he goes on to say, because God is Love, there's that idea again. We're gonna come back to that. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Now watch how he continues to build this idea. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence, which is a big idea. I think too many Christians are walking around insecure, timid, lacking the, uh, the, the strong assurance of their faith. And, and John's saying, no, 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 you should have more confidence. You should live with more hope and faith and joy and optimism because you know your God is good. Hey, we have confidence on the day of judgment. And like, like the biggest moment of your life. When rubber hits the road and the ultimate moment of truth, you get to be that annoying kid who shows up to the classroom to take a test and you're confident you're gonna pass. Remember that kid, how annoying that kid was? Like test day was so stressful for me, but someone would come in super excited to take the test because they knew they were prepared for the test. As Christians, we show up to the day of judgment, not with fear, not with stress, not with anxiety, but with confidence. Hey, when the rubber hits the road in my ultimate moment of truth, I'm going to pass the test, not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done, I'm confident in his love for me. Guys, this is amazing. So God goes on to say, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. So he's kind of building this idea because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. He goes on to say, but we love because he, say it with me, first, we love because he first loved us. And you know the rule. Anytime I have you repeat something, we're, we're coming back to that in the message. He goes on to tell us, whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, oh my goodness, this is where we get exposed, is a liar. And, and you see this all throughout the epistles and you see this all throughout the New Testament where the, you know, they were just, there were communities of believers that held each other accountable. Hey, no, 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 no. We don't treat each other like that. We don't gossip, we don't slander, we don't lie, we don't operate in hate. That's not who we are. Because we've experienced great love, no, 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 we express great love. And this is the, the trademark, the hallmark of the community of faith. He says, for whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And that is... That is so much coming your way, but give yourself a round of applause. You made it all the way through the text. And again, John is love, 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 love. I mean, he says the word love so many times. And as you are well aware, John is not having to use our English word love, which is a, a great benefit to you and I because our English word love is limited and diluted. And what we find with John is John is writing his letter in Greek. 
And what I love about the Greeks is they were so precise with their language and their labels and their definitions. This was key to just their intellect and sophistication. They were precise and concise with all of their labels and definitions. And I think that is critical for you and I to understand and navigate and develop a sound mind and develop wisdom also that you and I can live a life that honors God. We have to, uh, we have to understand concepts more clearly. Does that make sense? And it would be like if someone went into a pharmacy in the middle of the night and they took all the labels off the medicine. And so the pharmacist shows up the next day and the pharmacist has all this medicine, but no labels. And so sick people are coming to the window and they're like, I don't know how to help you get better because I don't know what I'm giving you. And that is what happens in a society where you dilute truth, where you dilute concepts, where you just start redefining very fundamental things, suddenly it's really hard to tend to each other's well-being when we've done away with all the productive labels. Am I helping? This is gonna go somewhere. So John was like, okay, I have to help them understand what God's love means. I have to help them understand this idea that will change their life. What words do I have available to me? And what you find in the Greek thesaurus, there were four words that meant love. Three of them were widely used. One of them was rarely, if ever, used. And those four words are this, eros, storge, philia, and agape. Wave at me if you've ever heard of any of these words. Yeah, Bible scholars. So this will be a review for many of you. And what you find is, John starts to go down the list of thesaurus. Which word best fits what I'm trying to explain? And he first comes to the word eros, which means desire. John's like, no, 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 no. That, that's not the idea because what is implied in this type of love is eros implies the need, the, the longing, the desire, the, the craving for something. And, and you can see this uh, idea of love played out in our relationship to food. We love pizza. When you and I are born, you and I have never you know, had a meal, but we show up day one hungry, right? Day one is like, hey, I need to eat. Hardwired in us is a need, a desire, a craving, a longing. And when that longing is fulfilled, we attach love to it. Does that make sense? That's what Eros kind of love is. And John is saying, yeah, well, that's not the kind of love I'm talking about in God because God doesn't need us. That's not a dig on you and I. It's just to say God is content with himself. The Holy Trinity has uh, existed from the very beginning of all things and has been content with himself, okay? So God doesn't love you and I because he needs you and I. So John's saying, yeah, that version of love is not what I'm getting at. What's our other option? Well, then there's storge, which means affection. And most of us, I think all of us, understand how affection works. Say you're at the grocery store, family comes around the corner, right? And they have a baby in a stroller and the baby makes eye contact with you and the baby smiles and what do you think? Oh, baby's so cute, right? You have this warm sensation and suddenly in that moment, what is triggered in your heart? Affection. Like, oh, this baby's so cute. And over time, what does affection do? It grows. You ever discovered that you grew in affection? Yeah, John's saying, okay, that's not the idea. 
God doesn't grow in his love for us. God doesn't need some incremental beginning for loving us. No, God fully and completely and exhaustively loves us from day one, from the very beginning, before we ever breathe a single breath. He loved us fully, unconditionally and incomprehensibly. God loved us. So it's not an affection. This is not something that he stirred to emotion with. This is not something that he grows into. No, God is the full embodiment of love is what John is saying. He goes on to say, well, what's the third one? Philia. And this is the type of love you would experience in a friendship. Well, how does that work? In order for there to be love in a friendship, I have to love you and you have to love me back. That's how there's love in a friendship. Love gets reciprocated. And John says, okay, well, again, that's not it because he loved us while we were yet sinners. He died for us while we were yet sinners. And even if we never return the love, he will always love us. So, so that's not the idea of love. Is there another option to which he comes to the fourth one, which no one at the time was using? And it's the word agape, which basically means the all-encompassing idea of love. And John's like, okay, I'm going to work with that. And here's what sets agape, what John is talking about, apart from the other three. The other three are a response. Agape is a reality. The other three are a response. Agape is a reality. So the other three, it is you are looking upon something and you are responding in love to a friend, to a situation, to an object, right? To a person, you are responding in love. He's saying, no, I need you to understand that God is the ultimate reality and has always existed and he is the full embodiment of love. And, and I know this is tricky, but here's one way to explain it. There is this professor at Boston College and he teaches philosophy and he says it this way. He says, the sun doesn't hit the earth the same way a rock hits the earth. Oh, it's so great. Listen to it again. The sun doesn't hit the earth the same way a rock hits the earth. What I mean by that, if we were to go outside and I were to pick up a rock and I threw it in the air, what would happen? it would come back down and hit the ground. Why? Because of gravity. And he's saying, okay, yeah. So how you understand a rock hits the earth because of gravity? Well, gravity doesn't have an impact on the sun. Think about that. He's saying there's not a gravitational pull pulling the light from the sun to hit the earth. It's something different. He would go on to say it this way. He would say, the sun doesn't hit the earth because the earth is the earth. The sun hits the earth because the sun is the sun. It's a great idea. In other words, God loves you not because of who you are. God loves you because of who he is. And the number one distinction between agape love and the other three loves, eros, storge, and philia, is those three loves are secondary loves. But what was the word I had you repeat? First, agape love comes first. Now, now understand this, and I know this is heady, but please lean in. 
secondary love responds to an already established value. So there's value established and in response to that value, I respond in love. But primary love establishes the value. It doesn't respond to the value, it establishes the value. So God loved you first. God placed a value upon you that you didn't have to earn, you didn't have to perform, you didn't have to do something to manipulate God or create some gravitational pull upon his heart. No, he loved you because of who he is. It's an amazing idea. And I think most of us, have a very shallow view of love. We, we live in a culture that has a very shallow view of love. And most of us are only familiar with eros, storge, and philia love. And it's super inconsistent. We, and so what happens is, is we then approach God with that understanding of love. And we assume that God's gonna love us the same way other people love us. Well, here's the problem with that. Majority of people in your life have chosen not to love you. And the majority of people in my life, I pass thousands of people every day who choose not to love me. Think about it. Majority of people who pass us by don't truly love us. And so we attach our understanding of love to God. Oh, this must be how God loves and so we then think, well, love is a response, so I wanna be attractive so someone will love me. And I wanna be successful so, and you know, independent, and I wanna be put together so I can earn somebody's love. And then I wanna work as hard as I can so I can maintain their love because I don't wanna be betrayed and I don't wanna be hurt and I don't want someone to abandon me. And so we have all this fear attached to that kind of love. But when love comes first, this is what John is saying. Perfect love, it drives out fear. And you, you see this all throughout scripture where scripture will take an idea and will lay beside it its opposite. It'll say, hey, in order to understand this better, think of the opposite. And if I were to poll people and say, hey, what's the opposite of love? People would say, hate. And scripture would say, wrong. The opposite of love is fear. And what you have to understand is love and fear, they occupy the same space and they're terrible roommates. One will evict the other. And John is saying, but when you encounter the perfect, overwhelming, incomprehensible love of God, it will evict unnecessary, irrational fear in your life. This is an amazing thing. And what this does is it means you no longer have to perform for God's love. And because here's the thing, we want to make sense of it. We wanna ask the question why. And what John is saying is because love comes first, because love is the ultimate reality with God, the only reason is because that's just who he is. It has nothing to do with your earning. Think about with your kids. If you're, you're t talking to your kid, and I was having this conversation with Presley recently. She's five years old. And I was telling her I love her. And she goes, why do you love me? So I start rattling off this list. And I started realizing I'm embedding the wrong idea of love into her. 
And so I'm telling her, well, I love that you're thoughtful and I love that you're, you're hardworking. I love that you're creative and I love that you're responsible and I, I love that you have a really great sense of humor and I love that you're strong and fast and courageous. And I'm telling her all these things I love about it. And then all of a sudden it hits me, wait a second. That's not the real reason why I love her. And I said, actually, Presley, dad was fully in love with you before I ever laid eyes on you. You didn't have to do anything to earn my love. I love you simply because you are mine. That's the main reason I am obsessed with you because you're mine. Well, that's the same way our heavenly father's like, yeah, nothing you've done could ever, or nothing you've done or could ever do could earn more of God's love and nothing you've done or could ever do could ever lose any of God's love. And, and here's the thing, when you start to understand love the way God wants us to understand love, what it does is it invites our timid souls to come out of their hiding place. Because again, we're so afraid that God's gonna love us the same way other people love us. And when you understand that, no, he doesn't love you for who you are. He loves you because of who he is. Suddenly your timid soul finds the courage to come out of its hiding place. He loves me. He's for me. He accepts me. And the problem with this is we live on this side of history, this side of the grave, where our God has an adversary. I know people don't like to talk about the devil, but folks, the devil is real and he is a defeated foe and he is annoying, but, but nonetheless, he is still a pest and he is still active trying to trip people up. And the devil is the father of lies, the father of manipulation and deception. And what he does is he tried his main agenda. You go all throughout scripture. You look at in the garden, you even see how he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. What he does is he tempts us by presenting to us counterfeits. Things that look like the real thing, but they're not the real thing. Things that sound like the real thing, but they're not the real thing. And, and similar to a magician who would use mirrors to trick and deceive their audience, Satan does the same thing. He, he presents to us counterfeits and causes us to fall for fake and phony ideas of God. So if I were to like stand in front of a mirror with my shirt and read my shirt, what would it read? It would read backwards. And so what has happened in our culture, and I know, come on, lean in with me. We have started understanding this idea backwards. And what's the idea? God is love. And what is it backwards? Love is God, and we live in a culture where the, the predominant thought is love is God. And there, there's a couple things that you have to understand here. One, understand how this logic plays out. Uh, again, because when you go to the pages of scripture, and I know I'm leaning in, in on you, but I, I, I get emails every single week from so many parents who are like, hey, I have kids in junior high and kids in high school and kids in college. Can you help me just assess their thinking? And can you give us some tools to think more critically? Yeah, so here's what I would say. In the Bible, it gives us three primary ways of thinking. Discernment, wisdom, and shrewdness. 
A lot of times we don't talk about shrewdness because we equate shrewdness to rudeness. But a lot of times you have to pump the brakes and think, wait a second, what do I actually think about this thought, this idea, this, this concept that is trying to wire itself into my, my mindset? Love is God. So if you think about this logic and how it plays out, it's saying A is B, but A is B does not mean A equals B. So, so let me say it this way. If I were to say, hey, if I were to call my brother and say, hey, Rick, mom is sick. Now, if I were to say that in the reverse, sick is mom, no, it doesn't work that way. Hey, mom is sick, and so what the concept does is it takes something you're familiar with, something you know, a subject, and then it adds a predicate to it as a way of giving you new insight to what you already know. Mom that you know is sick. But mom is not the flu. Cancer's not mom. You can't flip it. Does that make sense? And this is what we're doing in our culture. We have flipped this, and now we are worshiping the idea of love, and not just love, a distorted, warped, and diluted idea of love. And here's what happens when, you, when this happens. Two consequences immediately take place. The moment you subscribe to the idea that love is God, first, you reduce God to an idea and a concept and you immediately dismiss and neglect his personhood. You lose the person of God. You reduce him to an idea and a concept. And, and here's the question. If you and I have the guts to dismiss the person of God and reduce him to an idea and a concept, <laughs> well, what do you think we're gonna do to each other? Dismiss each other's dignity and humanity. Reducing each other to ideas and concepts. Because ideas and concepts can be experimented with, which is what we're doing in our culture. Folks, come on, you have to open, wake up to this stuff and be like, hey, wait a second, God has something greater for me in mind, right? And so, it is learning to say, hey, there is a, a way of thinking that God is placing before me that he wants me to understand how great his love is for me. And so the first consequence is you will reduce God to an idea and a concept. The second consequence is you will divinize your idea or understanding of love. In other words, you will look at your limited, shallow, influenced by culture understanding of love and you will start to see it as divine. And you will devote yourself and you will worship that idea of love. And, and this is what is happening in our culture. We are worshiping eros, storge, and philia types of love. That's what we're doing. We've, and, and the moment you do that, you put a lid on God. You put a lid on God and you can, you've now blocked your thinking to really fully experience and discover the greatness of who God is because now you understand God through the limited construct that you've placed him in. And so you have to have it appropriate. God is love, but love is not God. Is that clear? And what I, I love about this is, John says, when, when you understand this, it, it drives out fear. When you understand this, there, there's no concern or worry about punishment. Remember that statement in the verse, fear of punishment? Because many of us, myself included, 
came out of a church tradition where still to this day, some of us just think, I don't know why I think this, but I think when the rubber hits the road, God's gonna be disappointed with me and there's gonna be some consequences that I'm gonna have to experience. Anyone just think God's holding out on a punishment for you? Like a lot of people think this way. I grew up in a church where I was convinced every time I left church, there was gonna be some maniac bus driver out there who has the moment I crossed the road, I was gonna get hit by the bus. And so I gave my life to Christ like every single week because I didn't wanna get hit by the bus and go to hell. Anyone else here is like, man, I don't know. Like, apparently there's bad bus drivers because every youth evangelist would be like, you could leave today and a bus driver will hit you. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Okay, I'm in, right? And the church I grew up in, and maybe the church you experienced as well, which I'm thankful for, but they were selling hell more than they were selling heaven. And fear is a great motivator. Hell's a great motivator, but my goodness, it cannot compare to how majestic and moving, life-altering and mesmerizing, beautiful and grand heaven is. And it's just learning to say, like, I don't, I don't have to live in fear. This God's not gonna let me down. See, that's the, that's the thing. When, when you think that, when you approach it as an Eros kind of love, like God loves me because God needs me. Oh my goodness. That means every single day you bear the pressure of God. <laughs> and that's why so many of us are afraid of letting him down because we think we're holding him up. And John's like, yeah, <laughs> none of that. He's not mad at you. If anything, he is mad about you. He loves you so sincerely, so lavishly that he sent his one and only son to pay the ultimate price for every single one of us. And it's not because of who you are or because of who I am. It's only because of who he is. It's, it's amazing. And so again, our, our timid souls, they come crawling out of their hiding place. And, and I just think, what would happen if we were a church that timid souls always came crawling out of their hiding place? That's where he makes, he takes the conversation about God loving us and he says, but hey, if you hate a brother and a sister, if you don't love somebody else, if you claim to experience this love, but you don't express this love, well, that's falsehood. Because here's the thing, the world desperately needs to experience this love, a love that loves first. And my, my question is, is, what would happen if we as a church said, you know what? Let's be the type of people who we love first. We don't hold love over people's heads. We don't try to manipulate. No, no, we just, we love them first. We love them first. And maybe, just maybe, if we were a church that was just so known by our love for people, maybe, just maybe, people who have yet to experience Christ will show up with timid souls and they will come crawling out of their hiding place because they will know I'm safe and secure. I can rely on this God and I have confidence in his love for me. I think that's amazing. And my prayer, thank you in the back, you're my guy. <laughs> I, um, my prayer is that 2024 would be a year, it's just like, it's just marked by God's love. 
governed by love. Paul would say in his writings, we are compelled and controlled by Christ's love. It's a great thought. And what would happen if that were the, just the calling card of our church? Hey, you can bring anyone here because this community of people has experienced a love so lavish, they will express it to anyone who walks through these doors because we love first.